Okay, so we're going to be going into the book of Acts, of course, chapter 7. And of course, it's a long chapter. It's 60 verses. So we had to decide how much of this we were going to try to tackle in one message. So we saw that it uh, neatly divided into two sections. Section 1 takes us all the way through verse 36. Section 1 is basically an historical summary of the history of God's dealings with Israel from the time of Abraham until the time of the death of Moses. And so that's section one, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Section two deals with his, with Israel's historical rejection of those whom God had sent to them as messengers, and especially the final rejection in their day of Jesus as their long away, uh, a long awaited Messiah. So that's where we're at. So uh, as we saw last week, the False witnesses had been selected by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, to testify against Stephen, one of the first seven uh, servants of the first church and and their uh, organizational need to minister to the Hellenistic widows. So Stephen was prominent among those seven, and so he was a threat to the religious hierarchy. So the Sanhedrin set up false witnesses. They testified falsely against Stephen, saying that he was blaspheming the temple and blaspheming blaspheming the law. They were quoting Stephen as having said that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this temple and change the customs of Moses. And uh, these are the things that they used to testify falsely against Stephen. None of them were true. Very serious charges. They could have brought the death penalty according to their version of Jewish law. And their interest was to condemn uh, Stephen. Uh, This was the same crowd, remember, who incited the people to cry out to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. So these were the very same people, the very same Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, and so these were formidable foes, and they were now a foe of Stephen and of the church. But as they looked at Stephen, we saw last week, they saw as they gazed upon him that his face had the appearance of the face of an angel. So he was not at all uh, terrified by this threat, although it was a very real threat, He wasn't terrified by it because he knew that the Lord was for him and with him. And he had heard the teachings and prophecies and promises of Jesus about being persecuted, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Jesus told his disciples, for great will be your reward in heaven, for this is how they persecuted the fathers and the prophets who were before you. So he had the peace of God. And it tells us in verse 7, or verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest asked Stephen about these accusations against him, and he said, are these things so? Are these things so? They were asking for and hoping for a yes or no answer, and obviously for a yes answer, yes they're so. I did say these things, and I did mean these things. But you know the interesting thing? Stephen didn't answer their question. He didn't say yes they're, they're so, or no, they're not so. He had a far greater purpose than to defend himself. There were people that needed to be reached. 
There was the Sanhedrin that needed to be challenged. There was the uh, need to point them to their need for Jesus. Just like when Peter preached to the disciples on the day of Pentecost, or not to the disciples, but to the crowds, and he told them that they were guilty of having crucified the just one, Jesus. And that crowd was terrified when they understood that Jesus is alive. So the very one they crucified rose from the dead and he's alive. And so what are we going to do? Peter said, well, here's what you need to do. You need to repent, believe the gospel, be baptized. And so they were. 3,000 of them were that day. So that was that was uh, Stephen's purpose here, really, was to testify of Jesus and to bring them to the place of panic as happened in chapter 2, where they'd realize, we're in deep trouble. We need to do something in relationship to this Jesus who's been raised from the dead. So that's where we we are. So in verse 2, all the way through verse 9, the section deals with the call of Abraham through the sale of Joseph into slavery. The call of Abraham through the sale of Joseph into history. This is the the chunk of Jewish history from the book of Genesis that Stephen is tackling here in a few short verses. Now, if you read the book of Genesis, you'll find that this very short summary that Stephen gives is got its original historical version in the book of Genesis from chapters 12 through 37. So all those chapters in the book of Genesis, 12 through 37, were taken up to record these events that Stephen synopsizes in just eight verses. So he said, verse 2, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And so when did God appear to Abram? Well, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he actually moved with his father Terah to Haran. Now, he had lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. That was the name of the city, which was in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means between two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans uh, in the area of Macedonia. We know from history and archaeology and the interpretations of our archaeologists that it was somewhat of an advanced civilization. They had refrigeration that they generated through the water supply, They had flood control in the city. They had water, of course. They had a sewer system to remove the contaminating waste. They had air conditioning because of the water. And it was a nice place to live. That's the bottom line. And so Abram was called to leave that place to go live in an unknown, unfamiliar place, and he wouldn't be given any land upon which to build a permanent residence. So that's a sacrifice, to leave a nice place, to go to a place that you don't even know, you're not familiar with, and you're not even going to own any land. And the wonderful thing is, in addition to Abraham's obedience, Sarah joined him. She went along with this and followed him and followed and was part of the caravan and lived this way with her husband, Abraham, for the entirety of her life and marriage. And Peter is so impressed by this in 1 Peter chapter 3 that when he's talking about what a submissive life wife looks like, what a submissive wife looks like, well, she looks like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, calling him master, whose daughters you are, he wrote, 
if you do the same thing accompanied by fear. So she is a tremendous example of a woman of faith and also of a woman of loyalty to her husband. Amazing. Verse 3, and said to him, this is what God said to Abraham when he revealed himself to him. He said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. The notable thing to me is here, we learn that Abraham heard the voice of God. We don't know how he heard it. Was it in a dream? Was it in a vision? Was it an audible voice? Was it a strong impression upon his heart? We don't know. But he heard the voice of the Lord. Just like you and I can hear the voice of the Lord. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I take that as not just a statement, but as also a promise. My sheep hear my voice. Lord, I can hear your voice. Uh, the, the airwaves, the radio waves are traveling at breakneck speed in the atmosphere, but we can't see them. But but in order to take advantage of the radio waves, all we need to do is tune in to the correct frequency. And that's exactly true. The Lord is speaking to us much more than we think, probably, but we need to tune into the right frequency. We need to get into the frequency of the Holy Spirit. We need to get into the frequency of the Word of God, the language of God, the way He speaks, what He says is found in the in the 66 books of the Bible. We need to get the right frequency. We need to get into the frequency of being willing to do his will. Because when we're willing to do his will, then we'll know that what he's teaching is true. So once we get these things in line, we're in the right frequency, we'll hear his voice too. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said. And I know them and they follow me. Verse 4, speaking of Abram, Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. So Abraham went from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran. And then when Terah died, he was moved into the land of Canaan by the Lord himself. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for possession and to his descendants after him. So this is what happened. I mean, this is actually the travel uh, distances that uh, Abraham fought, uh, traveled from Ur to Haran, where he lived until he was 75 years of age. That's 775 miles. And then from Haran to uh, the land of Canaan is another 600 miles. So all total, uh, Abraham, with his caravan the sheep and donkeys and camels and tents and supplies and all the things they needed, uh, they traveled 1,375 miles or so. That's amazing. And he would never own any land in that place. But God uh, promised that the land would be owned by Abraham's descendants. And he said that to Abraham even before Abraham had a son of his own. But God, but, but uh, Abraham believed it. Verse 6, but God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. So the Israelites, Abraham's descendants, would grow up initially in the land of Canaan and they would grow to a certain size, a certain number of people, and then they would be moved to a foreign land. That would be Egypt. 
And the Egyptians would bring the Israelites into bondage, which is found in the book of Exodus, and oppress them for 400 years, which happened historically. All of this is recorded as to, uh, in terms of a prophecy, in Genesis 15, when the Lord speaks to Abraham. And that's exactly what he said. Uh, Your descendants, Abraham, are going to be dwelling as strangers in a land that is not theirs, They will serve those strangers, they'll serve the Egyptians, and they will be afflicted by them over the course of 400 years. And that nation, eventually, Egypt, I will judge. And then Israel will come out of Egypt with great possessions. All of that happened historically in the book of Exodus. It's amazing how God fulfills his promises. So Abraham's descendants would end up in Egypt for 400 years. Now, something was going on in Canaan while Israel was developing as a nation in the land of Egypt. Seventy-five people went to Egypt initially, but when they came out of Egypt about 400 years later, they grew to a multitude of two to three million people. So, I mean, tremendous growth during that time. But what was going on in Canaan at the time that they were in Egypt for those 400 years? Well, Genesis 15 also goes on to say that the iniquity of the Amorite people had was coming to a full end. That is, it was coming to its maximum uh, level of evil. And so God was giving the Amorites opportunity to do something. And they took that opportunity to get more and more evil. They became so depraved that the only reasonable solution The only good solution for the future of Israel, the future of the Middle East, the future of the world, was to eliminate this stain, this blight upon humanity called the Amorite people. So when Israel came back to the land of Canaan, now a much, much larger group of people, obviously, they were directed to exterminate the uh, Amorite or Canaanite people because they were not worthy to live and if they had been allowed to live they would poison and corrupt everything and everyone. So God ordered them exterminated. Now the question I have always when I'm thinking about this thing is well did God give any of the Amorite people an opportunity to repent? I mean was it just case closed? You're done? Every one of you is going to die and be condemned forever and that's it? That's all she wrote. And I asked that question, and then I think of the same thing with regard to the flood of Noah, where only eight souls went into the ark and were saved from the flood and from its destruction. So what happened to all the people that died in the floodwaters? Did any of them have a chance to repent? Did any of them have an opportunity to get right with God? And and, and although the scripture doesn't say specifically, I think that there are definite strong hints that he did, that is, the Lord did give them opportunity to repent. It didn't mean that they weren't going to die, but they did at least have an opportunity to get right before they they passed out of this life. And the reason I believe that is because of the character of God, of course, throughout the the whole of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, he's a God of mercy, he's a God of forgiveness, he's a God of justice as well, of course, but He's that way. That's his nature. His nature is such that he was willing to send his son Jesus to pay for the sins of the entire world and be the one atoning, sacrificial, 
uh, offering to God that paid for every single sin that would ever be committed. If he was willing to not spare his own son, would he be willing to forgive those that repented? And I think that his willingness to forgive and give people a chance to repent is probably very much implied in the gospel message. But then on top of that, I look at 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter's clear. The Lord is clear through Peter. The Holy Spirit inspired this. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I have to believe that he gave people an opportunity in the days of Noah to hear truth that would lead them to repentance. And the same was true in the days of the uh, reoccupation of the land of Canaan by the children of Israel. We know that there was a tremendous witness in the days of Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness as he built that ship. And then we know that there were great witnesses of of what God was doing in the days of the uh, return to Canaan. You had Rahab, the the harlot in the city of Jericho. She very much was a believer, and her testimony was probably very loud uh, concerning the veracity of Yahweh, the truthfulness of Yahweh. And then you had what Israel had done, and they'd heard about the Red Sea, the people in Canaan. They'd heard about uh, the the waters of the Jordan River. They'd heard about the destruction and the defeat of Og, the king of Bashan, and Sion, king of the Amorites. They'd heard about all these things, and they were terrified. And no doubt that terror would have moved them if they wanted to be moved this way uh, toward an opportunity to repent. So anyway, just some interesting side notes. Verse 7, And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, says God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. Genesis 17 records God giving to Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And if you read that chapter, God says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. I think there were five I wills in that chapter and says, now this is the covenant that I give to you, the covenant of circumcision. Circumcise your male children at the, at the age of eight days old. And, uh, and this will be the signifying act on your part that you accept the covenant. You want to be in agreement with me. You want to participate in my my promises and in my plan. That's what circumcision was. Now, circumcision happened after Abraham was justified by faith. That happened in Genesis 15. When Abraham was wondering, how can I have a multitude of descendants? How can this be? I don't even have any child of my own. And the only heir in my household is this servant of mine named Eliezer, and he's from Damascus. He's not even one of us. So how can this be? So the Lord took him outside and pointed him up towards the heavens. He looked at the sky, the night sky, the multitude of stars, and he says, see if you can count these stars. That's how many your descendants are going to be. And Abram believed in the Lord, Genesis 15, 6 tells us, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. He was given the gift of righteousness 
because he believed in God himself and he believed in God's promise. That happened, and then a couple chapters later, he was circumcised. So circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham being justified. It was the sign of the covenant that he received it. He had received it, but it was not at all what made him justified. His faith justified him, just like it's always been from the time of Adam and always will be. We are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So nobody is saved by works, even if it's a good work like circumcision. Just like today, nobody's saved because they're baptized. But so many people trust that the fact that they were baptized, even as an infant, means that they are in the kingdom of God. And that is not true. One must be born of God's spirit by faith in Christ in order for that to happen. For for by grace you have been saved through faith. Verse 9, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him. So we have Abraham to Isaac, we have Isaac to Jacob, we have Jacob to his 12 sons, which were also the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those 12 sons was Joseph, one of the two sons born to Rachel. And Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, was sold to Ishmaelite traders. They took him to Egypt and then they sold Joseph, the Ishmaelite traders sold Joseph to the Egyptians And he was sold to a man called Potiphar, the captain of the guard and the keeper of the palace prison directly under Pharaoh. And so that takes us to the next section of this chapter, and that is the patriarchs and their move to Egypt. The patriarchs and their move to Egypt, summarized in seven verses here in Acts chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. But if you go back and read the historical account, the prime source material, it's a much longer version. Chapters 38 through 50 in the book of Genesis covers this material of the patriarchs move to Egypt. In verse 10, it had said that God was with Joseph. And now it says, and God delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. So Joseph trusted God through these trials. Why did he trust God through these trials? Because God had appeared to Joseph when he was a young man, 17 years of age, and God gave Joseph two dreams. And in both of those dreams, uh, it was evident that Joseph's father, mother, and siblings would all be in a place where they would bow before him and he would be, in a sense, ruling over them. And that was the promise. Joseph didn't know what that meant. He didn't know how it would be fulfilled, but that was God's promise. And he knew it was the Lord because the dream was essentially the same dream and it happened twice. So Joseph trusted God through all the trials that he went through, sold into slavery, thrown into a pit before he was sold, delivered to the Egyptians, serving as a servant in Potiphar's house, which was kind of a good gig because uh, he was a faithful servant. And Potiphar said, okay, you're, you're running my whole household. I don't even need to know what I own anymore because you're so faithful. But then Potiphar's wife falsely accused, accused Joseph of attempted rape, which he, of course, did not do. And so Potiphar had no choice but to throw him into the prison of the palace 
And so that's where Joseph was. But what happened there? Well, Joseph prospered once again. His faithfulness and his relationship with God shined, and he became the steward over the entire prison. Everything that went on there was Joseph's business, and it was under his authority. And uh, that was culminated by the dream of the butler and the baker, and the re- the butler was restored to his position, just like Joseph had said. Joseph said, when you're restored to your position, make sure you remember me before Pharaoh and get me out of this place. But he forgot Joseph once he was restored to his position until Pharaoh had a dream. And when Pharaoh had a couple of dreams that were the same dream, uh, they brought Joseph in to interpret the dream. And that's how Joseph became uh, the ruler over all of Egypt, except for uh, he was still subservient to Pharaoh himself. But other than Pharaoh, Joseph was the, the main ruler in all of Egypt. And now there's an interesting passage in Psalm 115, or Psalm 105, verse 19, that talks about what was going on inside of Joseph during all those years of trial, from the years of 17 to 30. He's 17 years old, and it all started 30 years old when he's delivered out of the prison. Psalm 105, 19 says, Until the time that his word, the promise to Joseph, came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. So Joseph's thinking about this a lot. He's thinking, okay, I'm here in prison, falsely accused. But God said through these dreams that I'm going to be ruling one day. So I'm I'm believing that. And the word of the Lord was testing Joseph to see whether he continued to believe the promise of God, even though his circumstances were completely contrary uh, to those promises. And those testings, of course, whenever they occur in our lives, they always make us grow. So Joseph was growing and maturing and becoming a completely different man during those uh, 13 years between the time he was 17 and 30. I love that passage. It's true. You know, the God's promises to us test us. And the Lord has given me a number of very personal promises, and they are testings for us to see whether I'm going to believe the Lord. But as I believe his promise, instead of believing the circumstances I'm in, I find that the promise is fulfilled in God's time and in his way. Verse 11. Now famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first, that is, the brothers of Joseph. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. So no grain in Canaan anymore. There was grain in Egypt. Sent them to Egypt to get grain. They get grain. They go back. Joseph says, if you ever have to come back here again, you're not. I'm not going to receive you unless you bring your youngest brother, Joseph's blood brother, uh, Benjamin. And they just figured they'll never see Joseph again because they could never get uh, Benjamin out of the out of the heart and out of the hands of Jacob, their father. Benjamin was their favorite since Joseph had died. J- Benjamin was Jacob's favorite since, uh, in Jacob's mind, Joseph was dead. So they came again eventually. Uh, Jacob relented and, and allowed Benjamin to go to get grain after the first batch of grain had run out. And it was in the second time that Joseph appeared to his brothers and they appeared before him, that Joseph uh, was made uh, known to them. 
and then Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. It's interesting because Joseph was known, made known to his brothers the second time. That's when they recognized him. And in this sense, and in many other ways, Joseph is a, an amazing picture of Jesus. Remember the Jewish people, the first time Jesus came, oh, they acknowledged that he was doing great things. They couldn't deny his miracles, but they were not allowing themselves to conclude that he is the Messiah of Israel and the Son of God. So they didn't recognize him for who he is. But the second time when Jesus returns from heaven, uh, at the end of the tribulation period and descends from heaven and uh, comes to the earth, there are going to be many Jews alive on the earth at that day. And Zechariah 9, 9 says that they will look upon him whom they have pierced. I think I've got that reference wrong. I think it's not Zechariah 9, 9. It's maybe Zechariah chapter 12. Anyway, you'll look it up. Uh, they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. So they'll recognize him as the one whom they pierced when he comes again, just like Joseph had had uh, go on in his life. Picture of Christ in many ways. In Second uh, Corinthians, Paul writes about the current condition of Israel in their hearts. It says, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So as, as Jews today read the Old Testament scripture uh, and they read the books of Moses, um, they don't see Jesus there. There's a veil on their heart. But when they begin to turn to the Lord and be open to the truth of what the scriptures are clearly teaching, then the veil is taken away and all of a sudden, wow. Jesus is there in these passages, and I didn't know it, but now I know it. And these are the Jews that are coming to receive Jesus as their Messiah. Verse 14. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. So where uh, is Jacob buried? Back in the land of Canaan, where his forefathers had been buried as well in the tomb that Abraham, Abraham had purchased. Okay, the last section of, of this study is in verses 17 through 36, and I'm calling it the rise of Moses and the deliverance of Israel. So this takes us to the time that, Mo from the time that Moses is born until the time that he's 120 years old, overlooking the promised land, but not allowed to go down into it and lead the people there. That would be Joshua's task. And so right, be right before Moses dies, all of this, uh, is the historical section that Stephen is summarizing here in Acts chapter seven. When you go back to the Old Testament, what scriptures form the primary source material for all of this history. Where in the scriptures is this found? And of course, it's found in four books of the Old Testament, four of the books of Moses, four of the books of what we call the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Four out of the five books of Moses refer to this time between the rise of Moses and the, and the deliverance of Israel and their uh, just about entering into the promised land. 
And it's a period of time that covers 120 years. And it's Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. That's where all of this is found. And so, of course, we'll want to quickly read those books because this is where the, uh, the, the fuller story is told. Verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people, oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. So the Lord allowed horrible conditions to arise in Egypt and mistreatment of the people by the new Pharaoh who wasn't aware of the history of Joseph. And so these horrible conditions included infanticide of the sons within Israel. Infanticide is the killing of an infant. And so they would allow the babies to be born, and then a a mandate was given to the midwives to make sure that the sons, the Hebrew sons, are killed. Of course, they disobeyed that edict, and the result was that Moses was born. And they hid Moses. Uh, Moses' family uh, hid Moses, and they put him in a basket and let him float in the Nile River, knowing that it would uh, go downstream uh, on a slow uh, move downstream. And that's when Pharaoh's daughter found Moses in a basket and lifted him up out of the water, which is what Moses' name means. It means drawn out of the water. He's drawn out of the water and taken in to the household of Pharaoh by Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 20, at this time Moses was born and well-pleasing to God. He was well-pleasing to God and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. So in, for three months he stayed in his home, but they couldn't, they couldn't keep him there. So they set him out in the, in the little ark that they had made for him. And then Pharaoh's daughter found him, took him away, brought him up as her own son. And Moses, it says, was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So for much of his life, he was raised as an Egyptian and trained as an Egyptian. Language, culture, the wisdom and teaching of the finest uh, education in Egypt. And these are all the things that were the circumstances that led to their need of a deliverer. Horrible conditions within it, within Egypt, making the people desire a deliverance. And Moses born during this time. So Pharaoh's daughter finds him. You know, Moses is three months old. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. But she, of course, can't nurse him. He's a baby. So they need a wet nurse. And they look among the Hebrew women for a wet nurse to nurse and, and eventually wean this child. So who did they find? They found a Jewish woman by the name of Jochebed. Who was Jochebed? Moses' biological mother, his real mother, actually was able to nurse his her own son until Moses was weaned. And we don't know exactly the age in which he was weaned and sent back, but presumably he had been taught a lot by Jochebed. He learned how to talk like most kids do before they're weaned, and they weaned them a little later then than they do now. And uh, so she could have been pouring into him just basic knowledge about you are a Jew. You are a descendant of Abraham. 
You are going to be raised in Pharaoh's household, but you are not an Egyptian. You are a Jew. God has a plan for your life. That's why he saved you. Pouring into Moses all of this kind of information, and it caught on because later we're going to see that he thought they would understand that he was their intended deliverer, but they did not. So it's an amazing, wonderful story. Verse 23 Now when he, that is Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. So he was very aware that his brethren were the children of Israel. Where did he get that from? From his mother, from Jochebed. And seeing one of his brethren suffering wrong at the hand of an Egyptian, he defended one of his Jewish brothers and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. And when you read the account in the book of Exodus, what you see is that Moses, he, he intended to kill this man as a, as an, as an act of vengeance against this Egyptian for oppressing one of his Jewish brothers. And he was hoping that this act of killing the Egyptian would help them understand that he was supposed to be their deliverer. So Moses, before he did it, he looked this way, he looked that way, he, See, look to see if anybody was noticing. He didn't see anybody watching. So he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. But it was known, somebody saw it, and somebody began to make it known that this Moses that came from the palace of Pharaoh killed his fellow Egyptian and did this deed uh, and then buried him in the sand. Well, the text tells us that Moses had supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, why you are brethren, why did you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a judge and a ruler over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? So when Moses now realized that this was more public than he thought it was, People knew about this. He he realized, you know, i got a bullseye on me now. The death penalty is my. If I stay here, I'm going to die. This is a capital offense here in Egypt. To kill an Egyptian, that's going to cost me my life. i got to get out of here. So he fled. And he became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he eventually married one of Jethro's daughters and had two sons. And... So there he is, living in a nomadic lifestyle among the Midianites in the wilderness area, learning the ways of the wilderness, learning uh, the culture of the Midianites, living completely disconnected from his own heritage as a Jew and from his upbringing as an Egyptian, a man with nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, nowhere to go, but to stay right there in the wilderness. And he did until he was 40 years old. And then when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Recorded in Exodus chapter 3, uh, the bush is, burn- is burning, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's, it caught on fire, but it's not burning. It's not being destroyed by the fire. And he sees this and he draws near to see what's going on. And he hears the voice of the Lord, uh, you know, don't go any further, Moses. And uh, we're going to see that in a second. So at this point, you know, Moses, 40 years old, he sees the vision of the, he sees the burning of the bush experience. 
So this is a good time to talk about Moses' life. He's going to live 120 years. But his life is neatly divided into three 40-year segments. And it's been said by many, and Warren Wearsby most notably, probably, that Moses' life uh, in three stages, uh, years 1 through 40, these were the years during which Moses thought he was really something. And then when he lived among the Midianites from ages 40 through 80, these were the years when he learned that he was nothing. He had nothing. He was nothing. He had become emptied. He'd become humbled. He'd become desperate. And then in years 80 through 120, when he finally went to meet God, he discovered what the Lord could do through someone who is nothing. What a wonderful description of 120 years of Moses' life. Years 1 through 40, he thought he was something. Years years 40 through 80, he realized that he was nothing. And years 80 through 120, he realized what God could do through someone who is nothing. And that really sums up the last 40 years of Moses' life. And so when Moses saw this burning bush... He marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. This was a terrifying experience for him, and he didn't want to look at what he was hearing. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So it was a holy moment for Moses. It was a terrifying moment for him. It was holy ground upon which he was standing. And the Lord was going to say to him, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it through your life, Moses. But first he had to get Moses' attention through the burning bush and through just a, an incident that led him to fear the Lord. And so the classic description of the mercy of God, by the way, is here in our text. I have seen their oppression, God says. I have heard their groaning, God says, and I've come down now to deliver them, God says. The mercy of God is often described as being not getting what we deserve. We describe justice as getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And grace as getting what we don't deserve. And that's a fine definition in and of itself, but it's not a thorough one, not at all, biblically. The mercy of God is much bigger than just not giving us what we deserve. The mercy of God includes that. But it also includes his active compassion where he sees the mess we're in, being in Adam and in our own sin and the mess we make of our own lives because of our sin. He sees all that and he has compassion toward us. He hears our groaning, even if the groaning is the result of our own sin. And he comes down to deliver them. That's exactly what he did in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sent his son in order that we might be reconciled to God himself uh, through the death of Jesus and through his resurrection from the dead. He does that through the gospel. And aren't you glad that the Lord didn't just ignore your complaints or your groaning, that he didn't notice the oppression that you were under before you came to know Jesus? 
but he actually did something about his compassion that he felt toward you. And he did it by sending his son and then drawing you to understand your need for Jesus so that you would believe the gospel. That's what happened to me. That's what happens to everybody who's uh, converted into Christ and who is born of God's spirit. So now Stephen is wrapping up this part of the message. And he says in verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he'd shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So let's talk about Moses for a second. Arguably, the greatest human leader of all time, with the exception, of course, of Jesus himself, the God-man. Yet they rejected him. Think of Moses' career. Think of the signs. Think of the wonders. Think of the Red Sea. Think of the long-suffering of Moses, along with the Lord, putting up with their silliness and their pettiness and their complaining for 40 years. Think of the order of the nation. They were a ragtag group of people coming out of Egypt that had no structure or organization at all and barely even any kind of an identification as a nation. And he ordered them. He organized them with Yahweh's help. The the Lord gave them Moses the law on Mount Sinai, and he came down with those tablets, and he taught them the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the entirety of the law, as recorded in, in Exodus chapter uh, 20 and on. And... And and he did all of these things for them. The tabernacle was built under his watch, which was an exact replica of what uh, is going on in heaven. And the Lord wanted to make sure Moses made it exactly according to the instructions that he gave to Moses. And he did it. And they had this beautiful tent-like structure that they could take with them everywhere they went throughout the wilderness. And then eventually put in a fixed place once they came into the land of Canaan the tabernacle they had, and the worship that connected to the tabernacle, the sacrificial system. And then when Israel sinned, they sinned so egregiously that the Lord was saying, I'm going to just kill them all. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to start all over with you, Moses. You're going to be the one that's going to be the leader of the nation. But Moses fell on his face and interceded for them. The Lord said, okay, I won't do it that way. He was testing Moses to see whether he'd be an intercessor. Later on, uh, Moses was given another opportunity. He said, if you will forgive their sin, Lord. But if not, blot me out of the book that you've written. Moses was willing to exchange his own life for the salvation of the, of the nation. Eternally, he was willing to exchange his own life for the salvation of the nation. So all of those things that describe Moses as a leader, yet they rejected him. They rejected him. So the pattern of Stephen's message has emerged. The Jews had in their history a nasty habit of rejecting their greatest leaders. And in Stephen's message so far, he's shown how they rejected Joseph, selling him into slavery. And it took him a long time to even recognize that he was actually who he is. And they rejected Moses uh, in their history in Exodus through Deuteronomy. So his message is building, and we'll see what happens next week as we conclude chapter 7. So God bless you until then. In fact, you can read verses 37 through 60, the rest of the chapter, in anticipation of what the Word of God has to tell us next week. God bless you.